at 9am on the 5th of April 2023 and 14,000 kilometres later, Michelle Lee, extreme solo rower, stepped foot on Australian land after 237 days at sea. Michelle, a massage therapist from Northwest Sydney, departs Mexico on the 8th of August 2022, spending Christmas and Easter tackling the Pacific Ocean to arrive on a beautiful day in far north Queensland. Hi, I'm Deborah Wallace and in this episode of Women in Sailing, we break the mould and talk to Michelle about her recent adventure across the Pacific Ocean and her journey to achieve another rowing world record. Her achievements include the first Australian woman to solo row any ocean, the fastest woman to row 1 million metres on a Concept 2 rowing machine, shaving off nearly 11 hours, which was held by a German Olympic rower, Her first record-breaking row was the Atlantic Ocean in 68 days, and now the Pacific Ocean, 14,000 kilometres in 237 days, breaking another world record. Let's welcome Michelle Lee. Hi, Michelle. How are you this morning? Good morning, Deb. I'm um, fighting fit. Thanks, sweet pea. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks so much for joining us today. And why don't we just jump in? Have you always been interested in rowing and how did you get started? Um, well, that actually, that's the funny thing because I had never rowed in my life. So the day I decided to row across the Atlantic Ocean, I had never put an oar in water. And um, oh, so, wow. yeah, so, you know, the, the fact that I was not a rower was irrelevant. It was um, inspired by a book called Rowing the Atlantic by Ross Savage. And she made me think, well, man, if she can do it, I can do it. And it was honestly just born from, from that simple thought of, you know, this girl that wrote the book, you know, she worked in the corporate world and there was just so many similarities that I just honestly thought, well, if you can, I can. And and it was, uh, you know, a book of everything that could go wrong did go wrong. So it wasn't, you know, the fairy tale, you know, um, rainbows and butterflies. It was a story of, uh, for me, triumphing and overcoming every single hardship, challenge, adversity that was thrown her way. And I thought, man, I want that. So, uh, you know, for two years it plagued me so consistently and persistently that I decided if I don't do it, I'm going to die wondering. And I just could not see the sense in that. And um, from there it just it just blossomed and bloomed. And, and this is why I say to people, don't worry about the how. Don't get caught up in the how because you will never do it, you know. It's uh, make the first step. The first step was try and get a boat. To me it was that simple. Look, I'll just get a boat. I'll go row it a few times around Sydney Harbour and, and then I'll be good. Uh, no, it's not that easy. But <laughs> I think naivety was my best friend as well, you know. I, I honestly had zero clue what I was doing or how to go about it and it's the thing is I've learned when you throw yourself into something with 100% commitment 100% belief 100% desire all the doors you need all the people you need the resources will come to you and um, you know that that's the big thing it's have that 
that desire, the belief and the expectancy and the re- it all happens. It's, it's full on like a quantum leap. I'm not joking. Fantastic. But, um, yeah, so so it, it went from there, literally, you know, try and find a boat. Oh, there are none. Oh, well, you might have to build one. Okay, no problem. And then okay. so next thing you know, I'm building the boat, you know, and getting um, well, well involved. You know, every weekend I was up there in overalls. You know, I was probably the biggest pain in the butt to the builder. But, you know, for me it was important that I knew my boat intimately and I had to learn how to use tools and, and um, you know, get familiar with the um everything that's in, involved, you know, all of the epoxies, the resins, and because if anything breaks, you've got to know how to fix it out there. So right. these are yeah. the things that I knew early on and I thought, well, the, the more I know about boat building, the better equipped I'm going to be if I do have to fix anything. And um, it was all part of the process. It just unfolded so naturally and organically and that's why I just say to people, just do it, just commit and now jump. But you mentioned the corporate world and the two-year lead up so what were you doing in your normal day-to-day life prior to the row so um for you know 12 years when I left school uh you know I'm talking 16 years old uh 1988 I left school and uh, I did 12 years of banking and you know I just fell into that because I was too young to join the navy so I wanted to join the navy and my mum said I was three months too young. Oh, I don't think you're sitting around here for three months. You know, go and get a job. So I go and got a job. Uh, it happened to be at the State Bank and I stayed there for 12 long years. Yes. So I never did join the Navy. And then, um, you know, one thing happened, uh, you know, one thing after another and I realised, you know, this corporate world is killing me, this nine to five, and I felt like a caged tiger. So, you know, I started to probably at around sort of 30 uh, 30 years of age, I started to really listen to my heart, you know, which said, you got to get out of this this um, matrix, this nine to five matrix. So, you know, I became a massage therapist and I did that for, you know, a good 12 years. Hey, there might be a bit of a theme here, 12 year cycle. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, you know, um, I started breaking the, the chains and the rules and I stopped complying with the rules probably at about age 30 where I left the corporate world and uh, became, you know, a self-employed massage therapist, which led to being a personal trainer, led to being a swimming teacher. So I kind of went into this uh, world of, um, you know, natural therapies and alternative therapies, uh, which changed my life. And then um, the the old, you know, just say yes to every opportunity started to become my motto and my mantra. So next thing you know, you know, I'm doing Kokoda and, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we trekked the Himalayas before that. So I, I sort of got a taste of just wanting to step outside of the, the queue and uh, get out of the lane and, you know, just do things differently, probably from around 30. And, and that was certainly um, thanks to my time in the corporate world, I think. You know, it made yeah. me realise I don't want to live like this. I've, you know, mm. been there, mm. done it now. Would, would I always say I'd rather pull beers than go back to the corporate world. Right, <laughs> okay. So I, I suppose that helped you with your personal preparation, you know, your mind, body and soul, um, being a personal trainer, having been out there, done the hard yards in uh, Kokoda and doing trekking. Your personal preparation for this row you said you hadn't really rode anywhere uh, and done anything. So how was that journey for you? 
So in order to learn to row, it was suggested that I go and get the um, world record for the million metre on the Concept 2. So if you want a world record in rowing, you go to Concept 2. They hold all of those, those records. And, um, you know, I went for the longest distance that they have, which is a million metres, and it, it served many purposes. So so way back then, you know, I'm, I'm just starting to campaign and start to try to attract some sponsors for, for the Atlantic Row. You know, I'm building the boat. Mm. And um, so it served many purposes. So to commit to doing the million metre, yes, I used it as a tool to learn to row. It's very technical. And mm. when you're doing it for that long, it's important that it is um, you, you do the correct technique or you'll be injured in no time. So it, it also was helping me to build a profile and some credibility so that when I was knocking on sponsors' door and they said, well, who are you? At least now I could say, well, I'm Michelle Lee. I'm the world record holder for the uh, million metre. Um, and it made me stick to a six-month program so that during that time uh, my body was adapting to become the long-distance stamina, endurance, you know, sort of um, qualities that that you need to go and row an ocean so it was just ticking so many boxes the discipline the boredom factor oh my gosh to be on an indoor rowing machine and I did it with no tv no entertainment whatsoever apart from my friends calling in you know on a Sunday I'd have to row for eight hours every Sunday on a Monday it was six hours every Monday and it was to a very detailed scheduled uh, program uh, and it was a seven-day-a-week program with two training sessions a day. So it was designed to keep you on the edge. It was designed yep. so that you never really had enough recovery from yesterday's session, and it was week in, week out, six months, just no break. And then, boom, it was game day. So uh, we actually did that event at the um, Australian Championships in the um, Penrith Regatta Centre. So I was surrounded by rowers. I was surrounded by, you know, everyone who knows what it's like to sit on an erg. And it's, it's a very love-hate relationship with an erg. Five and a half days later, we, we took the record off a German Olympic rower. So that's part of my story is, you know, I, I don't have a rowing background. I wasn't born um, with, you know, special genes. I'm not the Olympian, not the gold medalist. But by sticking to the plan to a T, Mm -hmm. I managed to take nearly 11 hours off, off a German Olympic record or, or, or the world record, which was held by the German, German Olympic rower. And, and so, yeah, that, that actually uh, set me up so well for rowing the Atlantic in terms of, you know, my body was, was already adapted to doing 11 and 12-hour shifts. Um, I knew what it take nutritionally to be able to maintain those sorts of um, uh, regimes day in, day out. So, you know, it, it taught me a lot about my nutrition um, and the importance of not hitting the wall. So making sure that you maintain a certain level of carbs in your body, fluid, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that was my mental training as well, because like I said, it's, it's just so boring to be on an indoor mm. rowing machine. But um, yeah. it built all those um, resilient foundation, you know, the resilience foundations that you need. And also it makes you realise um, the importance of wanting something so badly because, you know, many people ask, is the mind rule the body or the body rule the mind? And I can now say hands down without a doubt, the mind rules the body because my body wanted to give up a million times. It was sore. It was hurting. It was aching. It was screaming, just stop. And yeah. my mind said, don't you dare. <laughs> so. Mm. You know, it's it's the um, the power of the mind. We we cannot underestimate it. And um, I realised on the Atlantic that I didn't do enough in the mind works. Um, so you know, being out there solo uh, for 
23 days. I was having a great day, a great time up to day 23. And then by day 46, I realized I was completely over me and I, I didn't have the toolbox, a mental toolbox to deal with the isolation that um, I was suffering uh, from the, the the effects of isolation because, you know, I thought I'd be fine. Mm. So it was really, um, really a great sort of um, my maiden voyage was great for highlighting all of those weaknesses, you know. So I I knew if I was going to row an ocean, I knew I had to develop an amazing mental toolbox. I knew I had to do a lot of work there. And, you know, obvious things like refine and tweak my boat, yes, okay, you know, it gave me the opportunity to go, well, shit, I'd change this, I'd change that, I'd simplify that, I'd get rid of that, you know. (laughs) So you're sort of making all these uh, scenarios in your head, if I did row another ocean, which is also where I planted the seed to row another ocean, you know, while I was during the first row, because you just know you can do things better with lessons learned. And it was I felt that I felt quite compelled to take advantage of all those lessons learned because, you know, there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears in mm. those lessons. Now I wanted to do something with them. You mentioned technique. What's something that you weren't aware of in your technique to begin with? Uh, Andrew was the guy who decided he would become my rowing coach and he said to me, can you row? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we use the rowing machine at the gym all the time. You know, it's always in one of our wads, you know, the workout of the day. Yeah. And he said, well, can you just send me a two-minute video of you rowing? I sent the video and here I am thinking, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good on the rower. And he just went, oh, dear, we've got some work to do. <laughs> so I was like, wow. oh, um, Yeah, it's very um, the coordination of rowing and it uses whole body. And, you know, one of the biggest mistakes someone will do on a rowing machine is they will pass the bar or, or the, um, the oar over bent knees. Now, that's when you look at someone, it stands out to my naked eye now like dog's balls. But um, and when you get the, you know, it's when you break down the rowing technique and you um, you get it right, oh, it just feels so good. You know, and that's what I say to people, just. Just stick with this for a little bit. Let's break it down. You're going to feel amazing. You'll be able to get further, you know, last longer, and you're going to avoid injury. (laughs) And you mentioned the 12 hours rowing each day. What sort of distances during that million metres? Yeah, so I actually was rowing uh, 14-hour days and – it was all broken down in uh, so four lots of three-hour rowing shifts with a very strict times half-hour break. So I would row from six till nine, get off the machine, get weighed. The first thing I do is step on a set of scales, and I had a, a whole support crew, and I, you know I didn't yeah. do this alone. So I was straight on the scales, someone record that, then I get straight into an ice bath. When I'm sitting in there, someone's feeding me, you know, a whole jacket potato with a tin of beans and cheese and I'm eating a whole meal while I'm in the ice bath. You get out of the ice bath and repeat four times. So that's your 12 hours. And then I finished uh, with a two-hour shift at the end of each day. So I finished the, uh, on the machine by 10 p.m. And um, I had to cover 168 kilometres a day. So because I was chasing a record, I knew exactly what pace I had to sit on. I had to sit on a pace of 230 and I had to pull 18 to 20 strokes per minute, and uh, I had to cover 168 kilometres a day. So that's what my 14-hour rowing shifts look like. And on the last day, I uh, I just didn't get off the machine. I stayed on it until uh, 2 in the morning because 
I said to myself, if I get off this today, I won't be getting back on. So I just stayed on and just ticked them, ticked them over. So I did a 19-hour day on, on the last day, which is how we managed to take, um, you know, nearly 11 hours off of her time. Initially, how many in the team that you had around you supporting you for this training? Uh, so I had uh, my rowing coach who also holds the world record for the males. So he did the world record uh, million metre. He's an Aussie uh, in Queensland. I had uh, probably about half a dozen friends who were just consistent constants, you know, throughout the whole training program, uh, the whole six months. You know, they, they'd always just even moral support. Like they know nothing mm. about rowing, absolutely nothing. But they knew me. They knew me very well. They knew what to say, when to speak and when to just quiet time, when to clear the tent out and just say, look, just leave her alone. She's in her own headspace. So I probably had a, a team of about eight in total who were absolute constants and I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. And mm. the big big thing for me was they knew me so well, you know, and, and there was a, a time on day three I was struggling big time. I'd almost, you know, sort of hit a wall. And um, my coach said the famous five five words he said, you know, after he tried everything to keep me motivated and lift my spirits and, you know, he finally said I, I had nothing left after this. He said, all, he said, I just said, do you want to quit? And that is what put a firecracker up my bottom. And I was like, quit? Are you joking? Why would I? quit for you know, rah, rah, rah. so but it was just what I needed to hear and um that's what I mean just having the people around you that that can say the right things at the right time can make all the difference yeah definitely totally agree you've got your mind going in the right direction your body you you streamline your training your soul right down deep in your soul you you've you mentioned Michelle that nutrition is extremely important. Can you share with us some of the food that you took with you? Yeah, uh, so all of my meals were mainly from campus pantry. They were the dehydrated meals that uh, obviously weigh uh, less and you know don't take up as much space. So, uh, and I had to have them all purposely repackaged thanks to the guys at campus pantry. So rather than just have one individual bag per meal which would have been 1440 individual packs I ended up having about six to eight meals put in one bag so as I was opening them you know I basically would eat six or eight meals from that one packet um, and that was just to save the space on packaging but um, yeah so the the campus pantry meals they were tried and tested I used them on my last um, row so I knew that they agreed with me and I wasn't going to have any um, GI issues when I was out there. Yeah. Um, and yes, I had my faves out of their selection. There's probably a good dozen or more um, selections that you can choose from, which obviously helps alleviate the um, boredom of eating the same thing over and over. So, but my favourites were definitely the mango curry chicken, the Moroccan pork with couscous, the lamb casserole, and the vegetarian pasta. Yeah. So, um, they were my faves. And then uh, I, I packed about uh, 10 kilos of oats, of um, uh, rolled oats, and it was at least 10 kilos too short. So I should have um, packed, you know, another 10 kilos. So I found that I would use the oats as an in-between meal or a go-to snack or, you know, like even as I could make it almost like a dessert. 
by putting dried fruit through it. So next time I know I need a lot more oats because they're like a comfort food, you know, hot, creamy porridge. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and I also ran out of all of my ready-made snacks, like your muesli bars, chocolate, sports bars, um, high-energy, you know, high-calorie sports bars. Mm-hmm. I ran out of them by about one, 140, day 140. So I, I know next time I need to load up on those. I need to, you know, account for, you know, more per day in, in the um, rationing. And um, it was a bit miserable when I ran out of them, to be honest. Yeah, you couldn't spoil yourself. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the other the other go-tos, uh, rice was a big go-to. So I used to just sort of bulk everything up with a serving of rice. I used to add it to everything to the point where now I just can't eat another grain of rice. For- How did you cook the rice? Uh, again, it's just dehydrated, so you add water and it hydrates. And uh, rice rehydrates really, really well when you use hot water. It doesn't hydrate so well when you use cold water, uh, which I was doing towards the end. I was using rice as my breakfast cereal, right, with a couple of spoonfuls of banana protein powder, and it was miserable. I was so oh. miserable. And then I, I realised if I hydrate the rice with hot water it was much more palatable it was much easier to go down and you know um so trial and error all the way right up you know my last week on board about your boat australia made and the vessel preparation we touched very briefly on that about the resin etc tell us a little bit more about australia made so uh, when i decided i was going to row an ocean there are um Three main types of rowing boats available. You know, there are specified design. In order to take part in a race, they have to be approved by uh, Ocean Rowing Society. So there's, you know, certain specifications and and building um, rules and regulations that you must adhere to. So at the time, I chose to build the Woodvale, which was the original classic first uh, ocean rowing boat that took part in, in an organised event, you know, a race. And uh, obviously, since mine, there's faster boats. There, you know, the, the designs are getting faster and faster. And um, and the main difference between uh, the Woodvale and say the Rennick, which they're the two main designs out there. The uh, Rennick is um, has a, a big a big front cabin, right, and and a low profile stern. So it basically catches a lot of the wind. So you, you get a lot of wind assistance. So they'll always be faster than a Woodvale, always. You'll never beat a Rennick uh, with a following wind and sea. Like it's just not possible. And I chose to build the Classic, which has the big stern cabin and low profile um, bow because you actually have to row. I said, well, I want to row across. I don't want to blow across the ocean. So right. I built, <laughs> built the good old Woodvale. And there was probably many times I cursed myself while I was out there going, oh, my God, if only you built a Rennick, you'd be there by now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she's a 7.7-metre by 2-metre wide um, full carbon fibre hull, combination of 5 and 8 mil foam core. And she's got all the latest mod cons on board. So I'm fit out with all the latest um, navigational equipment, AIS, GPS. I've got a Simrad chart plotter. I've got an autopilot, water maker, electric water maker. So there's batteries, solar panels. And then in order to be um, compliant, you need all of the safety regulations stipulated by 
the Atlantic Campaigns, who I did my first sea or ocean row with. Uh, so, you know, it's built to to the last millimetre of, you know, your grab lines must be 30 mil, thirty millimetre above the waterline. And all this gets measured. You, you know, you've got to have your four-man life raft on board, flares, uh, all your safety equipment. You've got to have done all your courses, you know, seamanship, uh, navigation, uh, your flare training, you've got to hold your VHF radio license. So there was, you know, probably a, a good six months worth of courses that I had to complete before I could even qualify to go in the race. And, you know, that's one of the, the big things that people say, oh, gosh, I, you know, you hope you're going to pay for your own rescue. Well, we don't go out there like cowgirls and cowboys and just say, oh, I'm just going to row an ocean. You know, we do all the courses. We know how to use the flares. We know how to be airlifted from a life raft. With the Atlantic campaigns, you do pay a very big entrant fee, which helps cover costs if you are to be rescued. So, yeah, there was, there was a whole lot of, you know, sacrifices that you make in the process of the preparation. While my friends were going out, I'm studying, doing courses. While they're buying $300 pairs of shoes, I'm buying $3,000 worth of rope. Correct. And yeah. it, it, it's a whole uh, change in your mindset and priorities. You know, you, you're willing to sacrifice and compromise all those things because the desire and the goal and the end picture is um, – you know, you obsess over it. You have to obsess over these things mm. or life will get in the way. Those invitations will come first. And uh, this is why I say you, you just got to be emotionally connected to the goal, to the dream, you know. Have something on the line, you know, put something on the line. Make it so that failing is not even an option, you know what yep. I mean? Yeah. So what was on the line for you? Uh, so for the Atlantic, it was the world record. So I said mm-hmm. to myself, if I can't achieve this world record in, in this first attempt, I am not allowed to row across the Atlantic. So I put that additional pressure on myself, which kept me true to the to the training program. You know, it really, I kept thinking to myself, if I miss one session and I don't achieve the world record, it's because I wasn't true to the program. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, it just kept me very true, very honest to the program. You, you've got to have something, some consequence behind all of your training. It makes it that much easier. It makes turning up easier on those days when you honestly, I didn't feel like sitting on that machine for eight hours every Sunday. I didn't feel like getting back on it for six hours on a Monday. I still had to run a business. I still had to pay rent. And, and you know, so it just made it easier when I had something on the line. We talked about getting sponsors. How did you go about getting your sponsors and meeting your timeframes? That goes down as probably uh, as difficult as doing the event itself. Mm, (laughs) Getting yeah, definitely. It's a lot of cold calling. It was, um, you know, you're obviously trying to approach people or companies that have an alignment with your values and that resonate, you know, so that when you're selling yourself, well, why, why would we come with you, you know? So you've got to be able to have something that they resonate with, mm-hmm. uh, their brand. So you spend a lot of time researching brands and, and you know, their ethos. And, and then, of course, the challenge for me was the fact that I was solo and I had never done it before and it was dangerous. So these are the three things that sponsors don't like. <laughs> they don't 
want to get involved in something where there's high risk of death. To me, my risk of death was minimal, but trying to explain that to someone who's not spent any time on an ocean um, and, and they don't understand and appreciate all of the training that went into just, you know, me getting certified to qualify to enter, it was very difficult. So, um, and I learned that actually from a sponsorship, a lady whose job is to try and get sponsorship dollars. And she said, the trouble is, Michelle, you're solo. You've never done it before. You're not a proven, you're not proven and, uh, and it's dangerous. So in the end, I attracted people who liked my story. They didn't particularly want anything out of it because a lot of them want to know straight up, well, what's what's my return on, on investment? And, you know, basically I said to them, well, you really won't see anything, if anything, until I'm finished, you know. So they had to be prepared to believe in me, basically, believe in my dream. And in the end, that's the people that I attracted, people who just love the story, love the fact that I'm giving it a go, didn't care if they got nothing out of it at all. In fact, everyone I attracted didn't even care if I had a sticker on my boat or not. They didn't care about me having a logo. I didn't have to sign contracts with them to say, I promise to deliver this, this and this to you when this is done or, you know. And it was really quite beautiful. I mean, that you form um, beautiful relationships out of uh, out of that scenario and they were purely based on we just love that you were giving it a crack they obviously love following and or backing an underdog you know yeah and um and to this day like you know uh, richard white from the keys marina he was my very first sponsor and he saw me on display at the sydney boat show i scrambled like mad trying to get the boat there it was just an empty shell by the you know the boat show was opening we're trying desperately i just finished the world record trying to get the boat built at the same time and then we get it in there on the floor at the boat show. Richard walked by, asked me, what's this? What are you doing? Loved the story so much. Has a connection with um, Che Blythe, Sir Che Blythe. He's the first man that ever rode across the uh, Atlantic Ocean way back. Wow. And, um, and, and he said, I- I'm going to help you. He said, come and see me after the show. And, um, yeah, he became my first sponsor. And then I finished the Atlantic Row and he said, if ever you do anything else again, please come and see me. I'd love to get involved. And, again, he was my very first sponsor to help get me across the Pacific. So that's what I mean. It just forms really beautiful relationships and, and these people aren't doing it for, uh, you know, notoriety or, or to be seen or to big note or anything. They just love the story. And I want to keep attracting those people. It's always great seeing Aussies supporting each other. For my first one, um, yes, they were. They were Aussies. And um, that's why Australian Made came about. I wanted to be called Australian. My boat was Australian Made and I wanted to be sponsored by Australian Made, M-A-D-E. So my boat is Australian Made, M-A-I-D, and I wanted to be sponsored by Australian Made, M-A-D-E. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so uh, go go the Aussies and, um, and then also the Pacific Row. Uh, that was sponsored. You know, my two or well, my three main sponsors are all um, – Aussie companies, you know, Australia One, they, they, uh, freedom fighters, they were true to my core. And that was, you know, the Pacific Ocean row was inspired by, um, me fighting for freedom, mm-hmm. um, you know, during that time in history, you know, COVID and everything and the lockdowns, it made me go inwards and really ask myself, well, 
what do you value in your life? What are the most important things? And it was freedom and adventure. So then, it, you know, that sent me on a whole new path of, you know, finding people who speak my language, people who resonate with me, in alignment with me. And, you know, I was seeking people that were willing to stand up, you know, the salmon swimming against the stream, that kind of thing. And mm. I found myself um, reaching out to Australia One saying, hey, do you guys want to support me? Can you support me? And um, that's how they came about. And, you know, Richard White, he stayed with me. And um, then uh, the Silver Group, the Silver Mind Method, thanks to Janine, that was my my mental toolkit. I went and did the Jose Silver program is an ultra mind control method using dynamic uh, meditation. And uh, so they became my three major sponsors. Let's hop forward. You're on a plane. What are you feeling at this point in time? It was a lot of anxiety, nerves, uh, uncertainty. Uh, we didn't know that I could even get my boat through and across the border. So just to clarify, the boat's in the US, you're in Mexico. That would have been a massive challenge. How'd you get it all sorted? So, I, you know, I had to do all my preparation through all of those challenges that were locked down. I had to break every rule in the book to, you know, I had shit to do sitting around at home in lockdown when I was not yeah. even sick did yeah. not make sense to me. And I'm like, this is absolutely crazy and I am not going to play this game. So I, I prepped my boat during lockdown uh, and I had to because I was actually going to go bridge to bridge. I was going to go from San Fran to Sydney Harbour Bridge. That was my mm -hmm. idea. Uh, but I couldn't get into the USA. So in the end, um, I, you know, I thought, well, I want to go this year because I'm turning 50. You know, I was so <laughs> motivated to go. This was going to be my 50th present to myself. And uh, so I, I just had to start looking outside the square and, and, out, and I thought, well, where else can I get into? Mexico, perfect. It's just across the border. So I thought my boat, were, you know, had to be, I couldn't ship it directly to Mexico. It had to go via USA. So that meant I had to try and get my boat across the border. Oh, my goodness, Michelle. What was that process like? Uh, yeah, so I had to go and retrieve my boat from USA. It was shipped from Sydney to California and they wouldn't release the boat without the owner being present. So it was causing, you know, major dramas and and also delay, you know. So eventually I was in Mexico and eventually I just said, I have to give it a go. I just have to try to get across the border. You know, my big challenge was, you know, I'm unvaccinated, so you still have to be vaccinated to get into the USA. Anyway, this particular day I just turned up and as it turned out, not one question was asked, not one, you know, no one wanted to see any back passports or anything like that. And I just was able to walk straight across the border, straight into the USA. So there I am at the busiest border crossing in the world, Tijuana. I just was able to basically hop, skip and jump across it. <laughs> I yeah. was like, woohoo, you know, I felt, felt like skipping with my Australian flag flying high in the air. But So, yeah, I did uh, manage to enter the USA and then my boat was waiting for me and it was, you know, the process was so easy and, you know, we can always blow things out of proportion in our mind. You know, we can have this overactive imagination where you just imagine you're going to be um, – 
flanked with with every challenge under the sun and you you can overthink things. That's what it proved to me. You know, if I had have just lobbed up way earlier, even a month earlier, I could have been out of Mexico earlier. I would have probably missed a little bit of the cyclone season. I would have obviously finished a month earlier. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, and that's all because there was all the fear around me not being able to get over the border. But uh, in the end, it was just so easy. And, of course, you had all the correct paperwork. Was the boat inspected and cleaned? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, so, uh, you know, as far as the boat being inspected, I was told before I, before I left, oh, you know, they're going to want to go through every single hatch. And everyone had me panicking. Um, you know, they said, you might even need to have some bribing money to get it across the border. None of that happened. Absolutely none. It was the easiest process. They basically just looked at my boat. And we told them I'm rowing across, you know, the Pacific Ocean. They all, the customs guys wanted photos with me. They're like, oh, can we make photos, you know? <laughs> so, you know, in the end, like I said, we overthink things, we overanalyze. It was the easiest process and that no one, you know, they couldn't be more supportive. So, yeah, all the paperwork had been done. I had a clearing um, agent who had processed the boat. And then basically they just needed to see the owner with the boat to bring it across the border. And, you know, so we just drove across, no dramas. Really, really interesting. Now you've got Australia-made prepped. Was it just that easy? Was it bringing it across, prepping it, and then, you know, now she's in the water and you're walking down the dock? Yeah, so I spent um, an amazing two months in Mexico waiting for the boat and then um, – Roger Batham, my weather router, you know, I'd been, yeah. been, been watching the weather and giving me the weather window opportunities, which were closing. They were getting, you know, it's getting closer and closer to a no-go based on my weather opportunities. So, you know, I'm bound by all these other outside influences that are out of my control. He, he said, all right, Michelle, you can go on this day, this day and this day. And I just said, right, when is I, I need to go on an outward tide because it was very tidal where I was. It was very, um, you know, that was also going to be a challenge. So we chose to go at 1.30 a.m. And um, by 9 a.m., I would have had no chance of getting out of there, out of the marina. Um, and it's it's the Coral Marina where they do that boat race, um, the San Diego to Ensenada um, boat right. race. Great facilities and everything. By 9 o'clock in the morning, forget it. You ain't getting out of there. Okay. So, yeah, we, we uh, it was all systems go. Um, Mexico put on a massive uh, farewell. They got the Marinacci band. Oh, man, they know how to party. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am thinking it's just going to be a quiet little farewell on the dock, you know, with my my little Mexican family and the friends that I made over there. But, no, I, it was full-on party central. And I'm like, man, I have to go. I've got to go at one thirty. You know, so 20 past 1, we're walking down. I'm getting on board saying it all felt very unreal. It all felt right. – I, I remember sort of laughing, thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm actually going now, you know. Uh, I'm going to row across the Pacific. And then you, you row out of the, um, you know, the, the harbour and – you're looking back at the land thinking, I'm not turning around and just going back in today. It's it's mm. just keep going. So, yeah, very unreal and, you know, it took a good three days for me to lose sight of shore completely and three weeks' worth of struggle, you know, getting down the, the coast of Mexico was, you know, welcome to uh, Hurricane Alley basically. I had five hurricanes zip past me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 
to, to the east of me, to the west of me. And I'm like, oh, man, it was, um, yeah, it was a big challenge that first three weeks just trying to get off the coast and dodge the hurricanes. And um, thank God for Roger Batham, you know, and his yeah. foresight and, and his ability to take into account how slow I go and, you know. Amazing with his forecasting. Oh, he's a genius. That leads me in. Let's sort of um, have a look at it. So you spent... 237 days out there. Mm. Let's explore some of the great moments, some of the not-so-great moments, and was there anything you didn't expect? Yeah, I didn't expect it to be as difficult. Um, You know, my experience on the Atlantic probably put me in a sense of false sense of security (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and Roger kept warning me when I approached him to be my weather outer he said Michelle you do know the Pacific is not like the Atlantic and I never got him to to expand on that I never asked him well what do you actually mean (laughs) yeah but I think there's there's a reason for that because like I say naivety is my best friend uh, how have I known, like the, the Pacific Ocean is so hectic. It was so demanding and uh, I did probably foot steering, manual foot steering for a good, I'd say 80% of the time because I was struggling with power for, for a lot of my row. There was just so much cloud cover, uh, you know, going through the uh, ITCZ, going across the equator. I had, you know, it's the tropics. I had so yeah. much rain and, and cloud and I just couldn't get off the oars. I found I found that I just if I wasn't manning the foot steering, if I wasn't manning my um, rudder, I was just beam on. So it meant that I basically had to sit in that rowing seat for eleven and twelve hours a day. I would just line all my food up next to me, pots on the deck, and I would sit and eat and row and virtually not get out of that seat unless I had to go to the toilet. You know, and obviously there's chores you do. You make water during the day. So, you know, I'd yeah. quickly jump out, set up the water maker, run that, get straight back on the chair, fill up a new pot of food, get straight back on the chair. There was no no chilling, no breaking, mm. no no sitting around, you know, like I did on the Atlantic. I, I had a marvellous time on the Atlantic compared to the Pacific in terms of I had a lunch break every day. I sat at the bow with my legs outstretched, eating a lunch. I was on autopilot. I had the following seas and winds. Yeah. <laughs> didn't get that on the Pacific. So, yeah, I didn't expect it. But um, highlight moments always is going to be um, the the sky, you know, even just cloud formations. They're just fascinating. And then you, you get your beautiful sunrises, sunsets, a, a night sky, oh, my goodness, where there's no cloud and, when the ocean is calm, it's just stunning. I had so many, oh, wow, moments. You know, I'd stick my head out and just look up at the sky and you just can't help but be in awe and wonder and full moons on the ocean. I mean, they're stunning. The wildlife visits that I had every day, you know, so many fish under my boat. It's like an aquarium under there. And then um, the bird life was, you know, it was so abundant birds that just and they hover at eye level like they're trying to communicate it was so spiritual uh, on some days I would goosebump from from head to toe I'd just goosebump it was like are you trying to tell me something like I'd be looking at it out the corner of my eye going oh my god I can't believe Or, or do you think they're just going what are you doing out here I never felt alone that's one thing I can say I never felt lonely or alone I always felt like I had 
you know, they were almost like an angel. I used to tell them, you know, thank you, my angels. They'd come to visit mm. and you'd have a chat to them and stuff. You know, you just don't feel alone. Um, and, and you mentioned on one of the television coverages that you had a visit by a shark. Oh, yeah. So what are the chances when you look at the size of the Pacific Ocean, now just drop a pin prick somewhere there and yeah. how did a shark end up on my deck, you know, in the vastness of the Pacific Ocean? But, um, yeah, so there used to be a feeding frenzy every day under my boat. As soon as the sun set, mm-hmm. you know, they would play harmoniously all day together. The sharks would be under there, the fish, sun goes down and all hell breaks loose. This is when they feed and they would be bumping the hell out of my hull. And obviously this this particular thing, it, it must have just jumped out of the water to catch the fish but landed on my deck. And, and you know, at the time I happened to be speaking to Roger Batham and I'm like, oh, my God, there's something <laughs> on my deck. And he's like, what is it? And I said, I looked down, I said, it's a shark. There's a shark thrashing around on my deck. And he's like, well, just go and grab it by the tail. <laughs> so and flick it overboard. It's easy. I'm going over out there. So I basically had to just uh, let him thrash himself to total exhaustion. And um, and then I still wasn't going to go out there and be, be his saviour because I watched them when they were swimming. They bend right back on themselves. Yeah. And they, their, their mouth can touch their own tail. So yep. I thought I'm not picking him up and have him, you know, go to turn around and bite me. So I had to wait and I throw him overboard the next day. <laughs> you know, you talk about like what are the chances and, um, you know, those sorts of moments that yeah, it, it's such a privilege to be out there because how many people get to see the wildlife in an ocean, in their environment, uh, doing what they do? You know, when the turtle turned up, it was like he was an a-list celebrity. All the fish would come out from under the boat. They all circle around the turtle, and it's almost like, "Hey, quick man, the turtle's in town!" Quick, let's get <laughs> and they all fuss over him. They were all eating off his shell, and you know, I realised what they were doing. They were yeah. eating the stuff off his shell. But uh, it's almost like he was a celebrity, and you know, we're all out the red carpet, boys. Here's the turtle. So these are the things that fascinated me. Uh, you're out there watching it, just going, "Man, I am just witnessing." Mother Nature at her best in her raw naturalist form, you know. I used to say Mother Nature, she is runway ready and she's just got this attitude, take me as I am and, um, you know, I am the boss. That's Mother Nature. Well, I love all your analogies as well. Did you imagine life on board? Was that your reality? Yeah, I thought I'd have loads of water every day. I thought, you know, um, I'd be having my fresh water wash every single day and uh, I thought I'd have an abundance of fresh water, which was not the case. Because I was struggling for power, there was at least 80 days of my 240 that I had to top up my water with um, manual hand pumping. So at the end of a 12-hour shift, uh, I'd find myself on my knees with pulling out the manual um, water maker and uh, pumping, you know, four litres worth. So I, I was on water rations for a lot of my time out there, which made it quite miserable in terms of, you know, washing. I, I basically used 400 mils to wash every day in my whole body, mm. 400 mils of fresh water, um, because that's all I could afford, you know. 
when you start looking at th- those dehydrated meals, take three or 400 mils each time. So you're using nearly two litres of water just to make your, your meals. Then you've got to drink. I should have been drinking at least three to four litres, at least. Yeah. There were days when I was only just drinking 1.6 litres. Um, so, you know, you're managing being on the verge of dehydration. Um, you, you're trying to manage, you know, all of that sort of stuff together with remaining fueled with with your meals that are so demanding for water. I had emergency rations on board, which was, you know, I had 28 days worth of um, tin food, but they're for an emergency. You can't just eat them because today I can't be bothered pumping water. You've actually yeah. got to save them for those times when you might be locked in your cabin and you can't get out on deck and it's easier to crack a tin on those days. You know, there was nine days I was stuck in my cabin on a um, sea anchor, you know, with, with Cyclone Gabriel. Uh, mm. She had me locked up for nine days. So they're the days that you're using, you know, your emergency rations and your emergency um, drinking water, which um, you have a very limited supply of. Uh, so they, they go down as uh, challenges or low lights. You know, there I am pumping water at the end of a 12-hour shift with waves crashing over me and uh, it's not an option. You have to do it. You've got to do it. Funnily, it's the highlights that you remember the most yep. and I think that's why people go back and they re-adventure. You know, they go and they're always planning their next one because if you remembered the worst parts of the journey, you'd never do it again. And, and I Correct. think... I'm not a mother, but I look at my friends that go back and have, you know, two, three and four kids. Well, I think they're the same. They remember the highlights because if they remembered the the struggles and the challenges and the lowlights, they wouldn't be going back and doing that again. No way in the world. You talk about a shortage of water. What was the weather like? What was it? Wiping hot. Yeah. And, um, you know, you've got reflective sun off the water, reflective heat and sun off the deck. You've got the sun beaming down on you. There's no cover on my boat. You're out there in the elements. And um, most part, I was just dripping wet with sweat. And, and then, of course, while you're awaiting the uh, cyclone or the hurricane, it sucks all the air out of the atmosphere and it's just stifling. Uh, you know, you get that eerie stillness for, you know, the 24 hours before the storm. It literally is the calm before the storm mm. and um, not a breath of, of wind. And i got to keep ticking away on the oars. You don't just go and you can't go and sleep in your cabin because it's so hot. You know, I had the solar panels on my cabin roof, so you've got – the, the heat from radiating down through the roof because of the panels, um, you can't go and sit in your cabin to get away from the sun or the heat because you're going to cook in there, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, yeah, so mostly for me out there it was uh, stinking hot. And when it did rain, it was just a welcome relief for, for the moment, you know, a moment welcome relief mm. uh, where I would – you know, either put my wet weather gear on or strip off and, and think, well, this is a chance to have a freshwater wash. You're out there, it's stinking hot. Any thought of retiring? And if you did, was there a plan B? I never considered it until the last 20 miles. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the thought of, uh, you know, retiring, never an option, never crossed my mind. Of course, you'd go to worst case scenario in the event that I had to be rescued because, I don't know, let's say 
all my systems broke on board and I couldn't make water, you know, that's, that's a, that's a put your hand up, get me yeah. out of here, depending, you know, how many days you got left. So that's our mid Pacific got to get rescued. Mentally, um, it would have been tough, but obviously your life would come first. And mm. the option for rescue out there is um, limited to commercial cargo ships. Uh, there, there was no yachts. I saw no yachts, no leisure yachts at all in my whole eight months that I was out. I was out there for three eight days, months, shot yeah. eight months. Yeah. And uh, months where I saw nothing, absolutely nothing. I didn't see it visually or on my chart plotter. Um, but, yeah, it, it would have been a, a commercial cargo ship that would have had to divert their course to come to me uh, that I did have to be rescued. Did and then, you have someone following you or tracking you, your progress? Yeah, I had, um, you know, my my support crew uh, particularly. It would have been Roger Badham. He would have yeah. been coordinator because he was tracking me every two hours. Um, you know, my, my yellow brick track would drop a pin every two hours of my uh, location and he would have been at the forefront of a rescue because he just knew my whereabouts uh, the time. And you know, he would have been on to marine traffic. He would have looked at what's the closest vessel. Then, of course, they would have uh, got in touch with that vessel and, um, you know, you need to divert and go and get the the crazy lady that thought it was a good idea to run across an ocean. <laughs> oh, look, let's move off that topic anyway because it didn't happen. And drawing closer to the land with each stroke, what were you feeling as you were drawing closer to the finish? Um, you sort of can't let your mind go there that early on. Uh, even 190 days was too early on for me to really start thinking about getting there because it just creates too much conflict because it's so different to your reality. So you don't let your mind go there yet. It's way too early. And, you know, I was out there during the cyclone um, season. So I knew that any any week another, you know, another cyclone could come through. Um, I don't know. You just sort of stay focused on each rowing shift. And for me, a rowing shift was 12 hours. So I just used to focus on the next rowing shift, the next rowing shift. And that's how I got through my, you know, 14,000 kilometres or 9,000 miles, whatever I end up rowing. It was just always focused on the next shift. Um, it's the only way I could do it. If I if I got in there in, in, on the boat in the beginning and just said, okay, I got 14,000 kilometres, <laughs> it, it would have just wouldn't have happened, you know. But if I just said I just got another rowing shift, I'll just do another shift, um, it made it mentally, you know, breaking it down like that made it, mentally achievable um so yeah and for me really it wasn't until uh had 300 miles to go that I started to really start thinking about home and shower and you know all those things that you miss so much all the niceties and home comforts uh, just a couple of weeks out and, and then I started thinking and you know we had to make some pretty big decisions as well you know like to uh near miss you know it, it, initially I was always going to come into Sydney uh, yeah. And there came a point where I, I had to make the decision that um, just get me to the closest piece of land. And, you know, I knew I didn't have what it took mentally to get to Sydney. Like Roger said, I can get you there, but how many cyclones are you willing to sit out? Um, how many more times are you willing to sit on your drogue for who knows? You know, nine days was was my first drogue experience and two and a half weeks later I'm on on the drogue again for five days 
So, you know, he said, how many more of those do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't, I, I just don't, I'm done. So, you know, then, then we made the call to um, come in up north up to, you know, originally it was going to be Gladstone, but I couldn't get south enough to get under the reef. Mm. So then we had to change it to Cairns. Well, I couldn't get to Cairns. Uh, I couldn't get south enough through the reef. You know, once I, once I hit the reef and we've got a reef hop, um, that was a whole new ball game. Now I'm dealing with tides. I'm dealing with the uh, currents that the reef um, produces and all the eddies. And so that was a whole new challenge. You know, I could only row in six-hour shifts with the tides and I had to drop an anchor or find a, a buoy that was, you know, uh, amongst the reef. So a lot of mental game changes that we had to deal with um, there and, you know, letting go of, of Sydney stung. It, it hurt mm. a lot. But once I'd made the decision, it, it felt like a massive weight was lifted off my shoulders. Did the cyclones throw you off course? Or, or- drogue's fantastic. Like, and I'd never experienced a drogue in um, a real-life scenario, you know, where they just held me so well in place that I only ever lost, uh, you know, five or six miles, which when you're looking at your 14 or 8,000 miles, it's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Um, You know, they held me in place really well. But, yes, they do put you behind. You know, the cyclones put me behind, I would say, at least a month. I could have finished a month earlier if we didn't experience any. um, I would have been finished at least a month earlier. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of waiting, you know, when Roger knew there was one that was going to uh, cross my path, he, he basically held me up in a, in a corner. Uh, he said, we're going to have to hang here because you don't have the speed to come and to be able to clear across its path before it comes down. So he said, I'm, we're best to hold you up here. So I had to basically wait for it to build and to do its thing and, and then um, cross my path. And then I could go, you know. But mm-hmm. but in that, you're also then waiting for the sea state to settle. So once the cyclone passes, it takes a couple of days for the sea state to settle before I could do anything. So I definitely lost a month worth of just waiting and uh, sitting on a drogue um, thanks to uh, Cyclone Julie, Cyclone Kevin and Cyclone Gabriel. They were my big, uh, I guess, problems out there. Wow. You had the foresight of Roger saying sit there. Um, I couldn't even imagine being in the eye of those storms. I couldn't imagine what it would do to my boat or you don't even want to think about that. No. But the preparation of the cyclone coming, I used to say to Rog, you know, tell me what it's going to look like. Is the sea state going to be uniform with the wind? Is, um, is you know, what size is the waves going to be? Uh, how many seconds apart will they be? And I found... Uh, I knew about what it's going to look like, the the karma I was, you know. Okay. So, so for me, I had to know. You had to paint the whole picture. I, say, I used to say to him, tell me what it's going to look like. What's the sea going to look like? You know, what's the wind waves going to look like? Um, was it what he painted? Always. Okay. He was spot on 100% of the time, absolutely spot on. Unbelievable. <laughs> He's a genius. He really yeah. is. And, you know, I'd ring him at midnight because I'd never seen a storm out there. I'd never been involved in um, lightning. And I remember the first night, it was midnight, I sent him a text saying, hey, Rog, have you got any idea what I'm in? Like, do you know what this looks like out here? 
Mm. And he had a look on the radar and he goes, oh, yes. He said, welcome to the Pacific, Michelle. You're going to see loads of this activity. I'm like, oh, my God, but there's there's lightning. There's sun. Is my stuff going to fry? Like do I have to try and, you know, put my electronics in in a box or something? Like what am I going (laughs) to He's like, Michelle, the chances of that happening are so slim. Like don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. I hear what said, look, don't drift, don't drogue, don't don't put anything. If you can put up with the uncomfortable conditions, because he said you're going to be beam on, but he said I'd rather you just keep moving. And because I was drifting in the right direction, even though my boat goes beam on if I'm not sitting out there manning the, um, the tiller, mm. then put um, that down to knowing when to throw the drogue out and, and knowing when to – Suck it up, be uncomfortable, keep moving. You're in the right direction. And, yes, you'll be a bit beam on, but, hey, you're okay. Um, It's not in your control and you learn to go with the flow. You have Mm. to. And landfall, what was that like? Uh, It was probably as unreal as the start line. It was like deja vu but in reverse. Mm. Um, You know, you sort of. Uh, can't believe it's it's mixed emotions you can't believe it's coming to an end you uh for the last few days at sea you're thinking how can I bottle this up and savor this peace and the serenity and the um simplicity of of this life you know it's eat sleep row repeat Mm. um without the demands and the distractions of first world and almost like uh it was like a contradiction you know, you, you can't wait to get back in. But at the same yeah. time, it's met with a little bit of uh, intimidation, uh, I think, is what I felt because, you know, you, you know that your life when you get on land is going to be, you know, you're back to the demands of, of phone, of email, of, you know, of people, um, then the mundane stuff about life. You know, you've got to go and do a grocery shop. You've got to do washing. you got to, you know, all that stuff. I keep telling my flatmate, man, well, that experience was overrated. You know, I came back from cold. Like after I'd been home for about 10 days and finally I thought I better go and venture up there and get back into the swing of things. And I came home going, well, people are too close together. They speak too loud. There's too much. The lights are too bright. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is so (laughs) And I asked myself after a – train trip on during peak hour I had to go into the city had an appointment one morning and I just looked around and everybody looked so mechanical not one person was not staring at a screen they all had their phones out staring down at their screen and I thought was it always like this or am I just really sensitive to it now because I haven't seen it for so long I'm not sure I can't remember and they're not um, smiling they're not no, smiling. There's no life in their eyes. Yeah, robotic, mechanical. Mm. And um, I was like, man, this is why I adventure. <laughs> this is this why. why I love talking to people like you. Um, you know, you put light back in people's lives, sincerely. You know, people can listen to these podcasts and they they sort of light up when they. Yeah, and I, I would love to think that. Um, like me, I've been inspired. These these are not my ideas when I go and do things like this. It's because I've been inspired by someone who's been and done it. You know, I, I listen to the Shackletons of the world and the Sir Edmund Hillary's 
and, um, you know, Serge Blythe and these pioneers that go and do things for the first time. Roger Bannister, you know, broke the four-minute mile. These are the people that make it possible in my world. I look at their stories. I fascin- I'm fascinated by them. Uh, I ignite something within me to think, man, I've got to get out of this rat race, you know, this nine to five, this, you know, uh, my story will do that to people where they just think, you know, I'm going to give something new a go, give it, just give it a go. I say, just give it your best red hot shot, man. Like you'll be surprised where it takes you and the skills that it makes you learn. It opens your world in a way that you never knew. You know, I had to learn how to reverse park a trailer, launch a boat. I had to learn how to hitch a trailer up, uh, all these things. Like it just opens a whole new set of skills and uh, abilities and that sense of accomplishment of, of achievement of raising the bar, raising the ceiling of what you thought was your potential. You got so much more there because you haven't pushed the boundaries. You just don't know it's there. But once you start, you then get addicted. It's very addictive. I will put a warning out. It's addictive. Yeah. Yeah. And you're so that was going to be looking. my next question. What's next for you? <laughs> so my flatmate put on um, Jessica Watson's uh, latest movie on Netflix. She put it yep. on the TV and um, I only watched half of it and I said at the end of it, right, i got to get me a boat. And I'm like, oh, she just put her head in her hands. She said, no, Michelle, no. <laughs> so now I'm obsessed with sailing. Now I'm like I'm already looking at the 5.8 um, little boats that you can race across the Atlantic with, you know, with Don McIntyre. He's created these this boat where you – Everyone races the same. You you buy the the kit, yeah. So that so that you are comparing apples with apples. No one's in a better boat than you know. It's all the one class, and um, it's a race across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm like, I got to learn to sail. That's what I got to do. <laughs> so I can lovely. Well, you've, can you've come to the right on. spot. You've come to the right spot with uh, Sailing Women's Network. I'm sure there's going to be a number of uh, people that reach out to you and say, hey, come sail with us. So, Yeah, brilliant. And you know what? There's just something about the ocean. It's just got a magnetic pull that I can't fight. So I know there will be more on the ocean. Not sure exactly what they are, but there will be more ocean adventures for Michelle. And um, and also hiking. You know, hiking is um, – it. I've got a big long list of hikes that I need to do and um, uh, and that's just pure love, passion. And I say to people, you find your, your passion and you found your purpose, you know what I mean? And when you're living your passion, you're not working. You, you're living on, on purpose and, and um, yeah. it's just pure joy. You, you're just bringing pure joy to your life. Yeah. Well, you did mention the Kokoda Trail right at the beginning. So just to digress, how was that for you? What, what was something you got out of the Kokoda Trail? Again, that's pushing boundaries. That's living um, beyond your comfort zone. It opened up uh, a world of curiosity for me. Kokoda actually, you know, I did that for my 40th. I turned uh, 40 on day two of the track. And that's what made me say yes. You know, my, my people I used to train with, the trainer just put it out there. Who wants to do Kokoda? I said, I will on one condition, that I can turn 40 on the track. So we had to book it in the August and um, that's all that mattered for me. I'm turning 40. I want to do something special for my birthday that I remember. I don't want to be boozing up in a pub with, you know, no recollection the next day. 
So, you know, and it's all part of the, the training is part of that for me. It's the discipline, the regime, the uh, sort of built, you know, like we were training. So that's the fittest I've ever been. When I did that training for Kokoda, I've never been that fit in my life. Uh, and, and, you know, it was, we did it in six days. So we set a goal for ourselves. Normally you'll do Kokoda in um, anywhere between sort of nine and 15 days. Yeah, and we said, no, 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 we're not going to be out there that long. We'll do it in six. So we did it in five and a half days, actually. We finished in five and a half. So, again, you know, we, we sort of push boundaries um, beyond what, what is considered norm. And um, it, it was my taste of addiction to these adventures. So thanks, Coda, for doing that for me. Lovely. But, you know, like I say, it's, it's all about the prep. It's all about um, how you can do it better and, even for me on a Sunday, you know, I've got my three hiking buddies and Saturday night for me, it's all about getting snack ready, getting all my nutrition ready for tomorrow. I'm being picked up at, sometimes we leave at 4.30 in the morning and I just say to my friends, what time do you want me downstairs out the front ready to go? And they, they fly by and pick me up and, you know, we'll go and do an eight or 10 hour trek, you know, like that's a highlight of my week and I will prepare for that. Saturday night, I've got to get to bed early because I've got to get up tomorrow. We're going to yeah. do this thing. And it's rain, hail or shine, but it's the excitement. It's how do you keep your life as though you are going on an excursion? Remember when you were a kid at school, you got the excursion tomorrow. How excited were you? And I want my life to be like that. So uh, that's why I say just find what you love, whatever that is, and you make it priority to be in your, uh, your week, your month, and it's life-changing. It sure is, Michelle, and we must leave it there. But, look, thank you so much for your time. You've given me uh, some food for thought there and um, I'll talk to you very, very soon. But thanks again and enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. All right, Deb, thanks for everything.